mental challenge of being 4,000 miles away from three houses I own, all of which have got trades running in and out, spending my money, is hard, is hard. If you're a, an expat investor, you have to have the mindset, I'm making an investment, I'm paying people to do a job, now get on with it. You know, if you've got a problem, tell me, but tell me it's done. Just tell me it's done. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there. You're listening to episode 54 of Expat Property Story, the show for expats investing in UK property. And that was Jim Pittman, who is soon to become a repat as he heads back to the UK from Dubai, partly for work and partly so that he can continue to build his property portfolio in crew. Jim recently featured in the two-part special on the so-called modern method of auctions, which you can find in episodes 51 and 52. But he's back today to talk about the rest of his portfolio and more generally about the specific difficulties he has faced as an expat property investor. Now that the auction season has reached its conclusion, I'm really keen to hear from more expats, so please get in touch. Without naming names, some of our previous guests were initially reluctant to appear, but once they did, none of them regretted it and several even said it helped their property stories as it encouraged them to move out of their comfort zones and build their network off the back of it. And if you'd rather remain anonymous, that's fine too. It's your story we're interested in, so if you're publicity shy, we can edit out your name or even change it if that's what you're more comfortable with. My aim is always to make you, and me to be honest, sound as good as possible, so all ums and ahs and stumbles and trips are painstakingly edited out, to make it all sound as good as possible. So hopefully I've now sold you this invitation and you think, yes, why not? You can now hit pause and drop me a message on the podcast website, www.expatpropertystory.com. And while you're on pause, if you haven't already done so, gently press follow on Spotify. There's no need to smash or the plus icon if you listen on Apple Podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Last week, I announced my plans for the pod over the coming weeks, which involve an episode a day for the 12 days of Christmas, starting with gifts galore on Christmas Day itself. So the first episode of this mini season of pocket-sized podcast episodes is a compilation of contributions from some of my amazing guests who will be giving you a Christmas gift of one resource that they recommend for you. Spoiler alert, some will be leaving more than one resource under the Christmas tree and John Howard will be coming down the chimney, so to speak, with a special gift of a free place on his next auction seminar, which normally costs at least £500. So this is a great opportunity to learn all about auctions from a man who has bought and sold more than 4,000 properties in a career spanning more than 40 years, so he knows a thing or two about property. If you want to win the competition, then all you need to do is to message the show at, again, www.expatpropertystory.com and guess what John's favourite resource is. And if you guess correctly, then you can win the awesome opportunity of a free place on John's next auction seminar. And some of these are online seminars, so you may be able to attend remotely. Now, I've been watching Pepsi Where's My Jet on Netflix recently, which documents the story of how Pepsi offered a free Harrier jet to anyone collecting 7 million Pepsi points, only to renege on the deal when someone actually managed it. Pepsi said they were only joking. But I can assure you, our offer is definitely not a joke. So message the show one more time at www.expatpropertystory.com with your guess. 
and if no one guesses correctly, then we'll have a lucky draw to determine the winner. So that's what we're doing for the first day of Christmas, and on the other days, I'll be counting down my favourite books for expat property investors, starting with number 10 on Boxing Day, number 9 the day after that, etc, etc, all the way down to number 1. And if you can guess all 10 books in order, then I'm giving away a brand new custom-designed Harrier jet. Only joking. Now, enough nonsense, onwards and upwards, Jim Pittman's job in insurance has taken him everywhere, but now he's heading home. This is his expat property story. We started by talking about Dubai. I love it. I don't know what it's like in Hong Kong. Costs are jumping massively. I mean, the place is booming. It's interesting. You kind of come from a democracy and you come to a planned economy, let's call it that. And the place is absolutely humming, but costs just going up ridiculous. You know, rent went up 20% last month. And they've got rent controls in place, but of course the landlords now have to play the game. So it is quite difficult to deal with. And food's gone up and obviously oil, petrol price just follows oil. So up and down, up and down. Um, so yeah, I'll be sad to go. I like the market, like the work. We just launched in Qatar. Been really busy building the business. But yet again, I'm doing it for someone else, someone I know in the UK, rang out of the blue and said, look, unfortunately, their partner had died. If you come back and join the business, we'll make you a partner. And as I say, the property thing, I kind of got the bug now. Timing's bad, of course, given the state of what's going on in the UK. Yeah, it'll be easier because I'm doing property developments or heavy refurbs, let's call them that, whole houses and extensions and all sorts. I asked Jim why he invests in property. My mum and dad, principally my dad, always had a project on the go so from as young as i can remember i was jumping in and out of foundations that he dug to build an extension on the first house i lived in and then even when i was sort of 18 19 and he would have been in his coming up what late 40s you know he saw a, a nice house that was run down oh that'd be a great project and then uh, by that point he was chairman of the business so he didn't need the money but he had that bug to enhance beautify, modify, change property. I guess I caught that bug from him. My first flat was just a flat, but redecorated and did what I could. The second house, ripped out the kitchen, did all sorts to it, floating floor, insulated the walls, new ceiling, electrics, plumbing. Back then, you didn't need anything. So have always had that bug and therefore have always bought houses that I could enhance, got into buy-to-let, as a lot of people do through accidental landlord, you know, sort of moved out of a house, let it to armed forces in Cambridgeshire. That went really well, kept it until Section 24 was announced and kind of panicked being a high rate taxpayer in the UK, just sort of not paying tax on my rental income. So sold it, sold the property whilst I was out here, had a load of cash in the bank and just wanted to get back into property. Didn't want to buy ready-made, so I'm pursuing the kind of buy and refurbish, which interests me. You know, for a living, I spend my life looking at burnout buildings and mentally putting them back together, costing up what it's going to cost, you know, organizing architects, surveyors, engineers, builders, contractors, and kind of pseudo project managing the whole claim through to conclusion. So um, it's what I've been doing for 30 odd years. All of this is around Cambridge, is it? No, gosh, I was born in London, raised in Aylesbury, started work in Plymouth, moved to Bristol, moved to Halifax, moved to York, worked in Glasgow, London, Gibraltar, Luxembourg for a bit, although I didn't enjoy that. Worked out in Saudi, so did all sorts, um, but the property is all in crew. Originally HS2, but principally 
last year when Bentley started to make moves to invest in crew before they made the big announcement about electric cars and spending billions on electric cars in crew. Um, I kind of made the plunge. Property is much cheaper in Crewe than, than Cambridge. Why did you choose Crewe? I knew the area. It's got a big employer in Bentley Motors and it's growing. So they're very well supported by the local council. So you, the council are bending over backwards to make sure they're happy. The council are also very good at extracting money out of the government. So they're demolishing lots of the city centre and rebuilding it. And HS2 will arrive in the next six years. They've started the work. You can see them doing the investigations work, which will mean that it's 15 minutes to Manchester on the train and it's 50 minutes to London. So it'll be well placed. I kind of missed the London wave and I missed the Manchester wave. So I was looking for something else and crew hit the spot. When I so why do you invest? It was kind of even more broad than that. I mean, you've got a well-paid job. I guess you've got a pension. Why do you feel you need to invest on the side? We'll be back with the podcast in a second. But I just wanted to let you know that we help high net worth individuals who perhaps don't have the time, expertise or contacts to find deals that stack right now. We can offer fixed rate returns of up to 12%. So instead of watching your savings get swallowed by inflation, why not schedule a free call via the link in the show notes to see how we might work together. Now, back to the pod. I've always pursued in my career part ownership of the business shareholdings so that it creates additional wealth. But obviously, as soon as I stop work, that all stops. I've got two children. This will create a legacy for them. And if I'm really honest, it's a place I can put some money and enjoy it. You know, I enjoy a property. I like bizarrely working with builders, looking at refurbs and putting buildings back together. I actually enjoy it. So I don't understand the stock market, I guess, is the kind of short version of where else could you put your money in the stock market? I don't understand it. To me, it's a glorified casino. Everybody wins, everybody loses, and, and property follows those cycles, but you can do more on your own in property than you, you ever can in the stock market. And do you worry about inflation? Yeah, inflation's <laughs> caught me off guard. Let's help put it politely. So I bought my first property through Modern Myth of Auction last August, so August 21. Got the contractors started in November 21. And I'm project managing it, so I've not got a main contractor. I've got trades that I'm pulling in at the various times, which is a slow process. But of course, in the last six months, particularly timber was first, but everything's just gone up to the point I actually went to one of my laborers who does an awful lot of work for me and gave him a pay rise, you know, in his daily rate, because I knew if I didn't, someone else would and I'd lose him. So costs have gone over budget on that project. So I haven't made any money, but I've learned a load. So I've got another one waiting and I've got one in progress now. So I've kind of got three projects on the go. One nearly finished, one in the middle, and one just about to start. But inflation's hard, but it erodes the debt. You know, I've got a mortgage on the middle one. So that debt will erode over time. And given the vagaries of property, you know, it will keep up with inflation, even if there's a step back. Trying to think people trying to avoid the word crash, aren't they? A step back in, in property prices in the short term, property tends to keep up with inflation. So as people's wages go up, it has a multiplier effect of what they can afford and that pushes up property prices. Property is a good hedge against inflation, would you say? Yeah, in the long term. Be a good hedge for my kids. Not so sure about me now. I've reached 56. 
So what would you say is the biggest problem you've had as an expat property investor? The biggest problem I've had as an expat property investor is trying to be hands-on and manage the projects. As I say, it's cost me money, it's cost me time. I've learned loads. But when something goes wrong, or they stop, or they knock off early, I'm 4,000 miles away. So I have literally done trips back to the UK for... 48 hours to sort a problem and flown back. I think if I had handed it off as someone else in the office has done, they're doing the same thing in Scotland. But they've handed it off to someone who sources, refurbs, manages it all, and they pay for that service. They've had a far less stressful and uh, eventful process, although they still face the inflation problems and you know it's cost them money. So next time you do the same, you'd still project manage? Yeah, I'm doing exactly the same. The first project effectively enabled me to find trades I could trust. So probably half the trades let me down. The other half didn't. As I say, the one I've used a lot, a general builder, who's a kind of younger guy, I just gave him a pay rise. I mean, I literally increased his day rate and said, you know, I want you to give me as much time as you can. I'm going to pay you more money. He took his wife away for a birthday and I gave him, you know, a small amount of money to have a meal out just to try and buy some favor. And it's worked. When I needed help recently on something, he dropped the job he was doing and went and sorted it. But it's an expensive lesson. It's probably cost me £20,000 more than I expected to get to that point, which on a house that's worth 150 is an expensive lesson. When you project manage from the other side of the world, how can you be sure that you can trust the people that you're project managing you can't i've used checker trade mybuilder.com all those sites you're looking for the recommendations i talk to them on zoom before i give them the job obviously because of what i do for a living i understand the pricing so i get an idea if someone is overcharging or even undercharging and skimping on the job but you're taking a punt they've got some decent reviews they say all the right things I had someone insulate the loft in one of the properties recently, sent me a video, all looks good, paid them the money. When I was home recently, went and just checked the job. They hadn't done 400 mil, they'd done 250 mil. So then you're into on the phone to them, but they've already got your money. So it's hard. So what did you do? Basically, we had some words. Obviously, I understand how to deal with contractors. I spent all my life dealing with contractors. I explained to him that, you know, he's a local tradesman. He's in the town of Crewe. He will find himself reported to trading standards. He'll get a small claims court summons over the internet. Life will get very difficult. Obviously, he came through one of the online portals, so his reviews will be bad, but also Google review. You know, I just make life very difficult for him. But it's a pain. It is a pain. You don't want to do it because... You know, I leave a bad review. It's also my name out there. And the next trade that looks up my name says, oh, difficult customer, demanding customer. So you have to think about it. But, you know, clearly, if they're paid to do a job and they don't do the job as agreed, you can't let it slide. I'm lucky now I've got this this general builder. He he will do some of the project management. He doesn't want the responsibility, which is why he's not got his own business. He's just a self-employed jobbing builder. But we've built a relationship over 12 months where he trusts me, I trust him. So he will look at a job and say, don't tell them I told you this, but they need to do this, this and this. And that works. Do you think, like say specifically that loft insulation situation, what could you have done to have avoided that happening and not having to do all the bad reviews? I think the reality is you end up paying someone 45 50 quid to go and check the job before you pay for it but you have to you end up doing that every time on everything but not all jim's experiences of remote project managing have been negative i've had some good success with my builder i found a painter and decorator polish couple who are brilliant i don't even ask them the price anymore i just give them the job 
They are fast, reliable, good quality job. And every time they give me the bill, I look at it and think, it's not enough. It's just not enough. I think Jack Trade is more established. I've had some decent trades. Yeah, did a good job. But my builder, I had another. And the guy did the plastering. Again, swift, to the point, great communication, does a great job. I mean, I shall use them again without a doubt. So I don't know whether my builder attracts a different type of tradesman, but I've had, not that I've had a bad trade off Jack Trade at all, and I have had a bad trade off my builder, but I've also had two, three quality trades that I will go back to and reuse. That could just be luck of the draw. I don't know. What about some people use a QS, quantity surveyor, right? Yeah. I mean, it kind of pays your money, it takes your choice, I guess. I've avoided using a, a QS or a project manager because I want to do it. That's what I was thinking. You just love doing all that, don't you? I do. I do. But um, and It's your own worst enemy is my guess. Exactly. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I think if I was staying here another five or ten years, as was originally the plan, I would find myself a decent QS stroke project manager, pay them and let them get on with it. You see, you're the opposite to me. I'm happy to pay that extra to get it done because, well, I can't put up a shelf. So I'm not the right person to do that. But I think that's kind of in a way to my advantage in a certain way because then it is yeah i wouldn't recommend anybody who's abroad even if they're a qs try and do it it's very difficult and it's stressful you know you end up particularly with time differences as you know you end up trying to get older people at the wrong time of day and it's not good not good so tell me about your second purchase having got very excited and obviously got my first property underway so the builders were in a scope of work was agreed on board being very honest about it, I've got cash in the bank. So I was driving around crew on Christmas Eve, would you believe? And there's a place called Victoria Park, which is very nice and been refurbished and saw a detached three-bed house up for sale. Went into the agents, had a chat with the agent, been on the market a while and wasn't selling because it had been an unofficial HMO. So the owner had lived there in one room and then had three other tenants living there. I hadn't done anything to it since it was built in 1999, but obviously modern cavity wall block house, you know, I mean, it's very straightforward. Talked to them about price, went and had a quick look at it, did some quick calculations on the refurb cost because I was going to extend it, but decided not to. Made an offer below the asking price and it got accepted. Instructed solicitors and that was 165000 And on this one, decided I would want to refurb it and then remortgage it immediately so I could get my cash back out and go again. So started the application for the remortgage process. The solicitors I used were the same solicitors as had done the first property, but by then they were swamped. By the time they actually got to gear, interest rates were either on the rise or threatening to rise and the remortgage market was going crazy. It was painful. I mean, just painful. I made the offer Christmas Eve. That completed on the 10th of June. Took a long time. Six months. I've had a survey done. I had to have a second survey done for the building society. But the conveyancing process was painful. What slowed it down most? Valuations? No, because I'd had, I got a survey done off my own back to just satisfy myself. I wasn't buying something that was falling down a mine shaft. So I had that by late February, March. But the conveyancing process both my side and the seller's side. You know, we respond, nothing happens for 10 days. They respond, nothing happens for 10 days. We respond. And they're just too busy. You know, speaking to the young lady at the conveyances, really nice, really helpful, very apologetic. Um, you know, really have my best interests at heart, but clearly swamped. So much work. So I guess this is an argument for buying at auction because it's not going to take longer than 28 days, right? You've still got to get them through the conveyancing process. So unless you've got a pet solicitor who knows you and is prepared to put you to the front of their queue, 
let's say a, a conveyancer runs a caseload of 100 cases at any one time, and then the whole of the UK decide they want to remortgage because the interest rates are going up, and they've suddenly got 300 cases, how do they cope? How do they prioritize anybody in that process? Um, then I guess you have to build a relationship with your solicitor. Exactly. And find one that's that's used to dealing with auctions. Exactly. You know, I've heard the term power team on various podcasts I listen to. That's a key thing I'm missing out of. I've used two firms of solicitors and even the second one where I paid for a VIP service. So I paid, they were still horrendously busy doing remortgages. Again, very good, very understanding. Every time I kind of chased, they'd respond. But if the system is overwhelmed. Because they're also dealing with the other side as well, aren't they? I mean, they could be fast and the other side could be slow. But yeah, I agree with you. I think the solicitor is the hardest part of the power team to kind of get right it's taken me a long time to find one so and i think the uk conveyance process you go through to buy a house is ridiculous i saw something recently as a firm in australia talking about launching in the uk because it's just data and information the searches and all the information is basically there and they're talking about launching in the uk and they now think that they can turn around the pack for conveyancing in a day this australian firm and they look at our system in the uk which is still 150 years old and say, it's right for change. Tell me about the final purchase then, the third one. So the third one, I went to see the estate agents on a property I've been bidding on through Modern Method of Auction. Said to them, look, you know, I'm a novice investor. I'm looking for my third property. It's cash. I wanted to buy this one online. Can you help me? No, we can't. But went back in there the next day and said, I've thought about it again. You know, what else have you got? And just talked to them. And they were very nice. And then 10 days later, they said, we've got one coming through. If you're prepared to sit and wait, and if you're prepared to take it as is, we won't market it. We'll push it straight through. So it turned out, I suspect, certainly an elderly resident, probably a COVID death. And the house was just full of stuff, beds, furniture, beyond what you'd expect with an old person. Not quite papers to the ceiling, but a hoarder-type premises. I mean, just full. So the family clearly didn't want to go through all the belongings. And all they kept saying to me was, are you happy to take it with all the stuff in it? I looked at it, cussed it up to get rid of it all, and it's not going to be cheap. I completed on the property in August, and I only collected the keys when I was back in the UK 10 days ago. So I went back in, looked at it all, and just shut the door and thought, I'll deal with that when I get back in December. Budget-wise, it's going to cost me 5000 at least. It's a three-bedroom, mid-terraced, late 1800s property. So big rooms, and it is just full. Just full. What sort of discount did you get on that property? So I paid about 50% of its final value. Right. And how much refurb will it need? Its roof is fine. It needs new windows, new electrics, new plumbing, new kitchen. Floors are fine. So I've budgeted 35000 in addition to the clearance, so 42. And then I've got a 10% contingency on that, so 46. And it's worth? 135. And I paid 65. I paid 65 for it. So all of these properties that you bought, they're standard buy to let. You'll rent them out on ASTs, right? Yeah. Like many investors in the current climate, Jim is starting to consider higher yielding models. I am thinking about HMOs because I will get squeezed on the mortgage or the remortgage of two of them. You know, I've locked in a five-year deal at 4% on one, but the other two I'm going to get squeezed on the mortgage, which is going to make a standard vanilla buy-to-let not very profitable, and that's fine. The properties are the kids long-term. I'm just looking for pension revenue in 10 years' time so I can weather not making money on them for five years 
but I can't keep putting cash in and leaving cash on the table because I won't be able to get a 75% buy-to-let mortgage with the rental and the, and the interest rates. So the affordability becomes a problem. So now I'm looking at maybe 60% loan-to-value, which starts to change the dynamics of buying for cash and reinvesting it all, you know, recycling the money. So the middle one, I paid 165 for. I've always taken the decision not to go more than 70%. So I took 70% back out which gives me 115. So I paid 65 for this house, leaves me 50 to refurb it. Let's assume the market doesn't crash. It's worth 130. 30% off that is 40. So that would get me 90 back out at 70% valuation. If it starts dropping to 65 or 60, I've got less money coming back out, which means the next one I buy, I've got less money to refurb. So if it's a 60% valuation on 130, suddenly I'm having to leave 52,000 in which means I'm pulling circa 80,000 out. If I then go and buy another one for 65,000, I've only got 15,000 for the refurb. So I'm stuck at that point. I'm now having to take money from my job, maybe not go out on a Friday night for a beer. Everybody runs out of money at some point, but obviously when I sat there with my cash pot at the start, I thought, well, I can get the first three done, refinance 70%. You know, I might make some value on the way. Therefore, I might get end up with 80% of my money back out. I can go and get another three, probably maybe two for sure. Whereas now, suddenly, if it's 60%, I'm going to be struggling to do that. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you started out? I think I wish I knew how painful the conveyance process was. I think getting a decent solicitor on board to do the conveyancing would have been my top priority, rather than given my natural inclination to want to get on with the refurb, worrying out the builders, which was the first thing I went and looked for. Actually, solicitor is key because if I'd had a solicitor who's on board and with me, they wouldn't have taken six months. I would have got through the refurb, certainly on the second one, whilst the rates were still sensible. I wouldn't be exposed to now thinking about paying 6%, 7% mortgage rate and the inflated cost of building materials and all the other problems. Just in terms of speed of process, it's cost me time and money to not have the right solicitor on board. So that, you know, when I get back in December, that is key to address. I've spoken to two or three and I'm going to see them just to talk to them. I asked Jim what else he found challenging about being an expat property investor mental challenge of being 4,000 miles away from three houses I own, all of which have got trades running in and out spending my money, is hard. Is hard. And it's part of the reason to go home. I've got a decent job offer with a partnership you know, that appeals to my desire to be the boss. So that pays the bills in the day job. But to do this and do it the way I want to do it, as you've correctly pointed out, I want to be hands-on. I need to be there because you can't do it. If you're a, an expat investor, you have to have the mindset as you have, I'm making an investment. I'm paying people to do a job. Now get on with it. You know, if you've got a problem, tell me. But tell me it's done. Just tell me it's done. Like many expats, one of Jim's colleagues uses a turnkey arrangement whereby his UK property partner sources, refurbishes and manages the property for him. I'm waiting to see how he gets on because he's obviously watched me and gone, I'm not doing that, even though obviously we both do the same job. So he's paid a firm to literally source the property, refurb the property and rent out the property and refinance it. He's in Dubai, is he? He's in Dubai as well, yeah. And what's he bought? No, he's buying flats, interestingly. Standard AST? Yeah, he must be 12 months behind me. So his first one's due to finish in January. And every time I see him, I ask him, how's it going? And he's like, I don't have your stress. still have the uncertainty you've had, but I don't have the stress. 
Is he managing to get all his money out? No. Do you think it's possible as an expat to get all your money out of a deal? I think if you're using a sourcer, the answer is no, because those deals they don't ever bring to people like us, unless you've got a very strong relationship. You know, there's a hierarchy, as I found out very quickly, there's a hierarchy in this industry and until you are established. And, and what you're doing through expat property will obviously establish you. So it's a good reason to do it because you become someone that people want to work with, as opposed to people like me who are just, you know, I work in Dubai, I don't pay tax, I earn good money. Oh, I'd love to work with someone like you, Jim. Someone who can price up a job, someone who can just look at a property from the other side of the world and go, that refurb is 30 grand, that one's 40 grand. That's my biggest struggle, to be honest. Is it? Yeah. It's interesting, I guess, because I, I started doing this job when I was 19, so I was very young, and that was August 87. And in October 87, I got sent to Brighton because the hurricane hit. I was doing 10 jobs a day, well, obviously all roofs, but you learn very quickly to price a job within 30 minutes. It's not accurate price, but it's a budget. It's been good enough for me to know that I'm not going to lose money if I go and buy or bid on a property. There's enough margin in it. So you can look at a deal and right move and give a fairly accurate... Yeah, I mean, I don't look... My partner, bless her, keeps saying to me, can't we just buy a three-bedroom house that's done? Well, I mean, there is an argument at the moment or just before the mini budget crisis that you're overpaying for the projects that need a lot of work because everyone wants to do a project for some reason. That's why I literally hadn't made an offer on a property this year because it just got bonkers. And to be fair, the agent who gave me the off-market deal just said, you know, we've enjoyed working with you, but it's just mental. You could literally put that house that you've bought with all the hoarder stuff in and get 20 grand straight away, more than you've paid, because people are looking for a project. They're not anymore. <laughs> They're going to be what they always used to be. They're going to be the bargain, bargain basement. Yeah, I think BRR is back. It was flawed for the last six, seven, eight, twelve 12 months, even longer than that. But now... Agreed. Yeah, probably longer than that. You know, I found it very hard. I mean, I, I had literally had a cash pot over £300,000. I just couldn't get it into the market. Just couldn't. Even with my rough and ready pricing, you know, I was bidding on one going, market value on this, once it's done, is 160. And it was a big house that needed a 40 grand, 45,000 pound refurb. And it went for 164. And you're thinking, someone's paid over 200,000 for that. You need the market to keep being crazy for another two years just to get yourself back to where you should be. It's just crazy. So, no, I think you're right. BRR is, is back. My first highlight from today's story is Jim's obvious passion for property and specifically for refurbs and project management. Jim is the total opposite of me and I'm always envious of people who can look at some photos of a property and make a working guesstimate of how much a refurb will cost. Jim admits that this is also his weakness, however, as if he's not careful, it can divert his attention away from the two principal activities all property investors should focus on, namely finding and funding properties. The second point of interest for me was Jim's shrewd identification of the need to strike a balance between blacklisting poorly performing tradesmen and acquiring a reputation as a difficult client. This can be a problem for those expats or remote investors looking to project manage from a distance. And the final observation for today is Jim's willingness to use different ways to source his properties. So he's bought one off market, one via an estate agent and one via auction. There's multiple ways to skin a cat. Continuing our World Cup-themed exotic listener location, this week we're celebrating South Korea's last-ditch invitation to the knockout phase of the competition as they scraped through to the last 16 with a goal in injury time against Portugal, 
which meant heartbreak for Uruguay, who were eliminated on goal difference as a result. I would feel sorry for Uruguay, but hey, I don't think I'm offending anyone there, as we don't actually have any listeners there as yet. So congratulations to South Korea, and if you're one of our listeners there, please message us saying yes, I'd love to appear on the show and share my expat property story, or yes, I'd love to enter the competition and win a place on John Howard's next auction seminar by guessing his favourite resource. Or yes, I'd love to sign up for the email subscription service, which incidentally, I promise to professionalise in the new year. That's a wrap for this week, except to say, share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat Property Story.